1: Hi everyone, and welcome to 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. The two golden age radio shows, Escape and Suspense, were radio's leading anthology series of high adventure and drama, with Escape airing on CBS Radio from July 7, 1947 to September 25, 1954, and Suspense continued to 1962. These two shows presented great American-made radio drama, which became the foundation for TV. Radio, as you know, is purely acoustic, with no visual component, and it relied on great scriptwriters and actors to enable the listeners to imagine the characters and the story. It was high drama, great acting, and terrific stories. As one of the shows say, all designed to free you from the four walls of today. Here we offer the very best of escape and suspense. We hope you enjoy this week's presentation. And if you do, send us a kind review for 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. And now, our two stories. Escape!
2: You are groping in the dark of the African jungle night, trapped on a wharf above a crocodile-infested river, fighting for your life against a ruthless giant. ...from whom you must escape.
3: Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today... ...for a half hour of high adventure.
2: Tonight we escape to the dank jungles... ...of the Seguanga Valley in Africa... ...and to the heart of a courageous man... As Robert Simpson told it in his story, John Jock Todd. No doubt you may presume my Scotch ancestry from a wee bit of the old speech that still clings to my voice. Though it's been some years now since I last walked in the heather of the hills of Abergaury. My name is John Todd, the same as my father's. Though to be sure, he's more often called Jock Todd. Jock being the fighter's equivalent to John. And a name which in no wise applies to me. I am a peace-loving man, not a fighter. And no man can deny it, even today. However, in other respects, I was a raw lad for certain when I sailed out from Glasgow and came here to this heathen land of Africa, and that's a thing which cannot be said of me at present. If a man lives at all in this steaming hot jungle of the Niger River, then he must learn very quickly, and most especially so if he lands at that dirty little trading post on Segwanga Creek.
4: Upside by, landing coming up. Here, there you are, Mr. Dirt. Seguanga Landing, and you can have it as far as I am concerned.
2: Well, I might say the parlor company had somewhat
4: more elaborate offices in Glasgow, Mr. Simpson. Hey, hey, no doubt about that. And how long did you sign up for? Four years. Four years. Lucky for them they catch you fellas in Glasgow before they ever seen the place. Oh, can't it be so bad? Those are fair-looking buildings there on the bank. Fair-looking buildings? Hey, watch that help? He's in it. Re- you want to tear out the wharf? I don't suppose you've heard anything about Brock. Well, they told me I should
2: report to the agent in charge here. A man named Captain Brock. Captain
4: Brock. Every agent in this stinking jungle calls himself a captain. That's him there in the wharf. Easy, boy. Get a line ready now. All right. Cut the motors.
2: He's a fair-sized man for certain.
4: He's big enough, all right, in some ways. So is a gorilla. Watch out for him. Can I say I understand you? Uh, you will, Mr. Todd. If you live long enough. Up there, top side.
5: Close
6: the
4: line, boy. Yes, sir. Me caught quick. Hey, that little fellow with him is named Ganson. You got nothing to fear from him till after Brock's made a move. He's a sneaking little jackal, but he never makes his own kill. I still can't understand what you're talking about, Mr. Simpson. You'll find out soon enough. Couldn't help you know now no to go ahead of time. I duck here once a week on the river run, but you're still on your own. You'd better know it right now. Mr. Simpson, you will have to explain. Okay, up now, Mr. Simpson. All same, plenty fast. All right, boy. Come on, Mr. Tartan. You may as well meet your new boss.
5: <laughs> Good me! look what the young office sent out to us this time.
2: Shut <laughs> <Right>
4: up, <Ganson. laughs> Well, Simpson, you are half a day late. When I start running my boat on a schedule, I'll send you a copy of it, Brock. Mm, if there was another boat on this river, I could ship my stuff on. You know what I would do then, don't you? No, you wouldn't, Brock. Not as long as you know I carry a gun. Man. <laughs> hey, you
2: there. You the new junior assistant. That's right, sir. My name is John Todd, and I assume your captain... I'll take the time to find out your name later. And I do not give two cents for what you assume. <laughs> That's telling the like did not I tell you to shut up? Yes, sir. And get out. Clear those natives off the wharf.
7: All right, you captain. All right, move along now, you're ready, Pegas. Come on, move now.
2: You there,
7: I'll step Get off me. Get I'll I have some
2: brandy up at the bungalow, Simpson, if you would like a drink while the boys are loading. Uh, I just had a drink on board. Uh, you there, whatever your name is. It's John Todd, sir.
5: Ah, uh-huh. so
2: it is John Todd, is it? And I suppose you call yourself Jock, like the rest of your blasted countrymen. No, sir. Jock is a name for a fighting man, such as my father. Can I say it fits me? <laughs> So you are not a fighting man, eh? <laughs> it makes things a lot easier, don't <laughs> it, Brock? As soon as your boat is loaded, you can bring the lading bills up to the office. Well, Todd, are you going to stand here on the wharf the rest of the day? No, sir, but I thought you'd be one of You, to start! A- you are not paid to think. Get your stuff up to the bungalow and be quick about it.
4: Whatever you say, Captain Brock... Four years of it, Mr. Todd. Welcome to Seguanga.
2: I didn't understand it at all. The reason for Captain Brock having acted in such a strange way. I'd never met the man, nor could I think that he'd ever heard of me before. And I couldn't be certain of the extent of the man's authority here in the jungle the Home Office in Glasgow having been a wee bit unclear about the matter. They had said only that the agent was very much like the captain aboard a ship and that he carried full responsibility in his own two hands. But about the attitude of Captain Brock himself, I very soon had few doubts left in my head. I didn't see the man again the afternoon I arrived, but a houseboy came and wakened me in the middle of the night and said the captain wished to see me in the main room of the bungalow, immediately. Captain Brock, the boy said you'd sent for me, sir. You do not have to tell me that. It took you long enough to get here, too. Well, it took no more time than to pull on a pair of pants. Oh, 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 so it makes you argumentative to wake you up in the middle of the night. I was not intended to be so. I am not interested in your intentions, Mr. Tart. You will learn to keep a civil tongue in your head. Well, I was not mean... Shut up! That's better. Hmm. And I suppose you're wondering why I had you waked up like this in the middle of the night. I presume you had a reason. Oh, you presume, do you? Oh, yes. And what do you presume the reason is? I'm afraid I couldn't say. Then I will tell you. I send for you, Mr. Todd, simply to show you I can have you waked up any time I please to. You had no other reason than that. None at all, Mr. (sighs) Todd. A fighting man might resent it, but then you are not one, are you? (laughs) Too bad. If that's all you've got to say to me, then I'll go back to my bed. That is all. Now get out of my office. Just as you say, Captain Brock. (laughs) The attitude of the man didn't change none of the next few weeks. And I couldn't find in my head any reason for his hatred. And it was hatred. It was in his eyes every time he spoke to me. I took care of my duties and stayed clear of them otherwise. And for the most part, we came to no head-on clash. That with the two exceptions, however. The first one happened about a week after I'd arrived. I was supervising a group of natives at the time, working on the breakwater at the end of the wharf. Mr. Todd, what the devil are those boys supposed to be doing? They're repairing the breakwater. I can see that without being told. Now, where did you get the authority to buy the timber? Why, you ordered it last week yourself from Chiefy Lorry. Uh-huh. Maybe I told you to accept delivery without having me look at it first. Well, you, you told me to receive it when it came in and that's what I did. It's good timber. I checked it myself. Uh, how would you know if it is good timber? Well, my father happens to be a forester back in <sighs> Scotland. The devil take you and your father both. I'd advise you never to say that in my father's hearing. Are you threatening me? No, man, nothing like that. But I'm sort of suggesting it isn't always wise to insult a man you've never seen. Ah, uh, I see. <laughs> now that I come to think of it, he is the one that is a fighter, isn't he? That's correct. Mm, the one they call Jack Todd, huh? <laughs> well, it is too bad he is not around here. Mr. John Todd. <laughs> Boy! You there. Throw that piece of timber you're using. Any fool could see it is too short. I said, throw it out. I will teach you to argue.
7: You. Get back on your feet. I said, get up. Get on your feet before I kick your head
2: off. I'd seen him knock Ganson down the same way and then kick him like he did the natives. And Ganson took it and saved his curses until Brock was not around. I wondered what I might do if he ever tried it on me. And the next week, I saw that he would try it, sooner or later. (laughs) Chief Dewana and his boys had come in from back country with a dozen canoes full of palm nuts, and I was out in the warehouse checking in the load. We used a big wicker basket for measuring, called a cooler, for some reason or other, and the one us boys would fill this, and then we'd dump it on the pile at the end of the building. Ganson was in the loading, and I'd check off each cooler in the tally book as it was dumped. It was late in the afternoon when we finally finished.
7: All right, all right. Step loudly now, ye, then blighters, There Right, no more to trouble about after this one. All right, Todd, is the last one. You got it marked, have you? All right, Ganson. All right, now, you ruddy beggars, let's take it back and dump it. Come on, put your backs to it now. Eve, Eve, here now. Tip her up, let's go. Here, it. that's it. Come on, shake him out. Shake him out every firm and ask one of them. Come on, shake him out. Oh, now, that does it. All right.
2: How many coolers did we have, Todd? Eight, 10, ten, twelve, fourteen, eighteen. How many 14, you count? How many 16, cooler 16, you get? Oh, same, me, maybe. Seventeen, eight, uh, nineteen, the one, huh? Nineteen. Me count all same, 20.
5: Well, luck is not you miss one, Todd. Give him his
2: 20. I didn't miss one, Mr. Ganson. The tally is 19.
5: You pay me 20, make what trouble. Sorry, Dohwana,
2: the count stands
4: at 19.
2: Don't be a crazy fool, Todd.
5: Give it to him, what's one cooler, more or less?
4: Me tell Captain Brock, he fixed
2: good. That will not be necessary, Dewanna. What is the trouble here, Todd? Haven't you got sense enough to take in a few palm nuts without getting your feet twisted? My fate have nothing to do with it, Captain Brock. He claims 20 coolers, and I counted 19. Then you missed one. Give him 20. can I do that, sir? You what? i going to sign my name to help cheat the company.
5: Oh, blimey, if it ain't down right, Shut Captain up, Brock. Ganson!
2: Mr. Todd, out here I am the company. Now write out that credit check. Whatever you say, Captain Brock. <laughs> it's taking your
5: orders like a good chap, Mr. Todd. I thought you'd change I just shut up,
2: Well? Have you got it written, Mr. Todd? There you are, Captain Brock. Well, it is lucky you decided. Mr. Todd. You have made this out for nineteen, which is, according to my count. Why, you blasted little rat. I'll advise you to stop and think before you move. <laughs> well, now, you wouldn't be picking up that shovel with any hostile intent, would you? No, man. No more than you'd be advancing toward me with a hostile intent. <laughs> Like that, eh? Mm. Duana, I am tearing up this check. I will give you one myself for 20. You always come to me. I will make it right with you.
4: Yes, Captain.
2: All same like you say. Mm Mm-hmm. And Mr. Todd, I will make it right with you, too. You can depend on that. (laughs) Brock stayed clear of me for a few weeks, and outside of the job of work I was hired to do, I had no words with him. I recalled Mr. Simpson saying to watch out for him. And I was fair certain he was only waiting for the chance to make his move. He outweighed me by 50 pounds, and I knew beyond doubt that I couldn't stand up to him. But what really worried me was not knowing of any reason for the man's attitude. It made no sense that a man should go looking for a fight without no reason at all at any rate the weeks passed the jungle steamed and the muddy river rolled past the wharf and then one day it happened sunday was my one free day in the week so i'd hired a canoe and paddled upstream for a visit with a fellow countryman at another trading post some few miles away it was just getting dark when i came back to the wharf and when i got in close i saw brock standing there Smoking and leaning on a piling at the far side the watch boy squatted near the edge waiting to take the line from my canoe he caught it and pulled the boat in and made it fast and i climbed out onto the wharf you have a good trip master Todd. not so bad bit hot that was all uh you savvy which place canoe man live yes sir live on breakwater side then uh, go tell him come get canoe Tell him, two day pass. I give him check for pay. Oh, yes, sir. May go now. Tell man plenty soon.
7: Boy! Huh? You
4: there.
5: Yes, sir, Captain Brock.
7: Did I give you permission to leave the war?
5: No, sir. But must Todd, told is... Did
7: I
2: tell you you could leave? No, no, sir. All right. Then go get the head man. Tell him I want him here right away. And you come back with him. But... Move, boy. Yes, sir. All right, Todd. Get up to your quarters. I think I'll be staying right here, Captain Brock. If you're planning to tie that boy to a post and flog him, as I've no doubt you've decided to do, then you'll be having a word with me first.
8: Cool,
5: oh, blimey.
2: Genson, is that you? All right, child, Captain. I heard what he said. If it's a witness you want, sir. I will tell you when I want anything. All right, Captain. No, I'll mention it. Take Mr. Todd up to his room and keep him there. I will attend to him later. If either of you lay a hand on me, it'll be a most unfortunate day in your lives. Oh, you don't say so, Mr. Todd. Mr. John Todd. I've told you what you may expect. Uh, So you have. I am not to lay a hand on you. Not even like this. Oh, do
7: the proper, Captain. Hit him again. <laughs> now, Mr. Todd, get up. I felt his foot smashing into my side. I tried to get up onto my knees, and I couldn't.
2: I told you to get up. <laughs> again. I knew it wouldn't take many to finish me off. My head hung over the side of the wharf. I made one effort and rolled off into the water. Hey, he's has gone into the water, Captain.
7: Maybe he can't swim. That is his hard luck. But suppose he drowns her. The resident commission will be down almost for certain. I don't want no chance in him. Up anymore. Ganson.
5: Yes, sir. He can't swim
7: all right. There he is now, climbing out on the bank. Llam if he ain't. What's the matter, Mr. Todd? You are not leaving us, are you? You have not changed your mind about having a word with me, have you? Mr. John Todd! <laughs>
2: Back in my own quarters, I changed into dry clothes, hurrying as fast as I could. I couldn't have find it in my heart to be angry with a man. He had struck me without warning and kicked me while I was down, and he was planning out to flog a native boy without the lad having committed a fault. It was not a thing to become angry about. Captain Brock had to be punished, that was all. And though it would mean my own life, most likely, it had to be done. It was no more than a matter of simple justice. Within five minutes, I was back at the wharf. The watchboy had come back with the headman, and a group of natives had gathered around the circle of light thrown out by a hurricane lantern. They didn't see me at first.
7: All right, Gunson. Pull his hands up over his head and tie them there. Stretch him out. <laughs> right, you captain.
2: The watchboy stood there trembling with fear while Gunson bound his hands to the heavy pole.
7: Hurry up, you clumsy fool, and make it tight. I want him to hang there after I'm through with him. Oh, he'll do that, all right. Captain, Is Todd.
2: Well, Mr. Todd, you are just in time to see the boy get what is coming to him. Brock, I told you before, you'll not be doing this without having a word with me. I was under the impression that you had already had your word, Mr. Todd. You've been laying into me ever since I came here, for reasons of your own, whatever they might be. (laughs) And what do you plan to do about it, Mr. Todd? You may be somewhat within your rights in that respect, but you're not so when you hit a man without warning and kick him while he's lying on the ground. Go on, Captain. Give him what for. I take it then, Mr. Todd, you have objections to hitting a man without warning perhaps it is a thing your father would not think of doing no objections mr brock now that i know you do it for it's a thing that one can do as well as the other god
5: <clears throat> blimey it's you captain
2: i don't mind now that i know it i coughed him
7: along one side of the head and then again in the other and while he rocked back from the blows i clutched my hands around his thick neck and slaked my fingers into his throat stop him captain Boy, tears out your bloody throat! Stop! Cursed and struggled and twisted, but I held on and kept choking him. tension my hands tighter and tighter. He struck at me and I let go with one hand and cuffed him again. And the side of the head. it, oh, Luke! That was some a mistake on my part. For the oh. blow enraged him, so he tore himself loose and smashed his fist into my face. <laughs> you got him now, Captain! Give it to you him! Give, give it to him. I will show you if you can. Kill him, Captain! Go and kill him! Get up, Todd! Get up! Go on, Captain. Kick his bloody head in for him. Give him a good look out, Captain. Look out! He's got your ankles. That guy, you dirty, that hey, oh. Kick your man when he's down, Brack. And now here you running oh. fool, you're breaking his leg. That's right, Ganson. No. Oh. Get up, Black. On your oh. feet, man. I hear through? I only pretended. Oh. Come on, get up on your feet. I can't get up. You. <laughs> Kill it. God, Go. Blimey, if you ain't broke his blooming leg. Like uh, I doubt
2: it. I'm <gasps> thinking it's only twisted. Ganson. He, yes, sir? Have the boys give him a hand to his room if he needs it. I'm going to my quarters and clean up a bit. Uh, Roger, right, Mr. Todd. Uh, and Captain Brock, you have no reason to be calling me a killer. I'm a peace-loving man, and I have no good opinion of such things as killing and fighting.
5: You tried to do me in, Todd. You are going to pay for it, I'm going to kill you for it, maybe today or maybe next month, but I'm going to kill you. You can count on it.
2: I went to my quarters then, and I didn't know what happened just after that. I didn't know about Brock kicking Ganson off the stairs while the little man was trying to help him, nor about Ganson going to the captain's room a few minutes afterwards.
5: How are you feeling, Captain? Oh, shut your mouth, Gansan, or I will shut it for you. You've got no call to be treating me like that. I'd have helped you if I could, but there just will not no chance. He'd have done for me the same as you, Captain. Oh, shut up!
2: I cannot even move my leg.
5: There was not no call to kick me a while ago, neither.
2: If I could get out of this chair, I'd do the same again.
5: You can't get up, Captain Brock?
2: How could I hope? Well, what is in your mind, you little beggar?
5: You've been booting me around for nearly two years now, haven't you? He opt-on me the first minute I landed. Like you got an habit of doing when a bloke is new.
7: And I will break your dirty little neck as soon as I can walk.
5: You've been treating me like a ruddy dog, Captain. And I've been taking it, too. Until now.
7: Uh, uh, oh, what are you up to?
2: Ganshan?
5: Ganshan?
2: I sat there in my room for a long time, holding the pistol I'd taken from a drawer of the desk. I couldn't see any way out of it. Sooner or later, at the first chance he could find, Brock was going to kill me. And aside from murdering the man in cold blood, I didn't see any way of preventing him. I couldn't leave the trading post and for certain i couldn't stay on my guard for 24 hours a day i couldn't say how long it was i sat there holding the pistol in my hand and trying to think how i might keep from dying and not even knowing why the man hated me enough to wish to kill me then i heard somebody coming down the hall outside my door i thought for a moment they might be going past but then I raised the gun and pointed it at the door. Ganson. (laughs) Ganson.
7: Man, what have you done to your hands?
5: Man? Oh, you ought to see him, Mr. Todd. You ought to come take a look at him. Oh, blimey, if I ain't marked him up all right. (laughs) I marked him good. What are you saying, man? What have you done? Him has always thought he was so much, just because he was bigger than me.
7: Oh, I I
5: showed him all (laughs) right.
7: What have you done?
5: (laughs) Why don't you come take a look for yourself, Mr. Todd? Come and see what used to be so high and mighty calling itself Captain Brock.
4: <laughs>
5: Take a look at him, Mr. Todd. He ain't quite so tough now as he was before. Ma. What have you done to him? Please, please do not let him hit me. Please don't let him hit me again. With my own two hands, I've done it, Mr. Todd. I
7: beat his to a pauper, dear. no mind while he's helpless. Get as bad as he is,
2: Ganson. Please do not let him hit me again, Mr. Todd. He's not going to hit you, Brock. Get to your room, Ganson. Come on. Oh, all right, Mr. Todd. Anyway,
5: I, I marked him. I have marked his face up good so it'll show for a long
2: time. Please don't let him hit me again. Shut up, you great blubber and baby. Most likely you'll live through it all right. Though you may never look the same again.
4: Well, uh, you've been having a bit of excitement. Oh, Mr. Simpson. I docked at the wharf ten minutes ago. The boys told me what had happened. I, uh... <laughs> Good Lord. You
2: did all that? Oh, not to his face. Ganson has been settling up an old score. I'm afraid the little man has a vicious disposition.
4: I never thought I'd see it. Brock, crying like a baby. Aye. And the sound of it
2: fairly sickens me. Suppose we step outside and let him be. Mr. Simpson, I've found out why Captain Brock hated me the way he did, why he threatened to kill me. Eh? What do you think it is? The man's a coward. That's all. You saw him in there just now. He knew he was a coward, and he was afraid I'd find it out.
4: Eh? You may be right.
2: There's no doubt of it. And I'm thinking you'll have him for a passenger when you go back downriver. You'll not be able to stay here, now that we understand him.
4: And I'll see to it that Ganson goes along with him. Well, I, I can't say that I'll mind the change. I mean, uh, doing business here from now on with a gent by the name of Jock Todd. Jock? Oh, no. You're
2: taking me all wrong. I'm a peace-loving man, and my name is John it's no wise proper to call a man jock unless he's a fighter. Now, you take my father, for instance. There's a man who can hold his own in any kind of company.
8: But I don't...
3: Escape, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Tonight brought you John Jock Todd by Robert Simpson. Adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield, featuring Wilms Herbert as John Todd, Jack Crucian as Captain Brock, and Tony Barrett as Ganson, with Don Diamond and Paul McVeigh. The musical score was conducted by Wilbur Hatch.
2: Next week. You are rushing forward through time, far into the future, trying desperately to flee the clutching fingers of a band of night creatures. A dreamlike horror from whom there seems no escape.
3: Next week, we escape with H.G. Wells' awesome story, The Time Machine. Good night, then, until this same time next week, when once again we offer you Escape. <laughs>
8: this is The Man in Black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Our stars this evening are three. In the order of their appearance, they are Walter Hampton, one of the theater's proudest names for two generations, and Susan Hayward and Lee Bowman, two of Hollywood's brightest younger stars. The story called The Dead Sleep Lightly by John Dixon Carr is tonight's tale of Suspense. If you've been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series our tales calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation, and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so, with The Dead Sleep Lightly, and with the performances of Walter Hamden, Susan Hayward, and Lee Bowman, we again hope to keep you in the fence. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Meadowvale Cemetery, not far from New York. Meadowvale Cemetery, on a dim gray morning in early April, when rain forms a mist across leafless trees and white gravestones. You see, over there, the group of silk-hatted gentlemen, each with his protecting umbrella, gathered around an open grave. You see the clay soil freshly dug? You can hear, perhaps, the creaking of support as the coffin is lowered into its everlasting house. And the droning voice of the clergyman. I am the resurrection
0: and the life that the Lord He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Live! Quiet, Mr. Templeton, please. What's wrong with old Templeton? Please, sir, remember where you
6: are. She's not alive, I tell you. She's not alive!
8: It might seem a long distance that the Cosmopolite Club in Gramercy Park on the following evening, when that same well-fed man, as hard and unemotional as the diamond pin in his tie, hurries up the steps into the club, then. What, Yes, Mr. Templeton? Tell me, Mr. Wilmot in the club, do you know? Uh, Yes, sir.
6: Don't you see him? See him? Where? In the lounge over there, sir, sitting by the fire. Yes, yes, of course, I'm a little upset. You're a good fellow, Henry. I won't forget you. Thank you, sir. Excuse me, sir, but... uh, Aren't you going to take off your hat and overcoat? Never mind my hat and coat. Just tell me one other thing. When I came into the club, was there anybody following me? Following you, Mr. Templeton? Yes, a woman. A woman with a long skirt and a heavy black veil. <laughs> there aren't many women who wear that kind of dress nowadays, sir. Look out into the street.
10: Do you see anybody?
6: No, sir. There's just um... What's that? Oh, that's only the old street musician, sir. He doesn't mean any harm. I won't have that tune played, you hear? I'm used to getting my orders obeyed, and I'm going to have this one obeyed. Here's the money. Go out and tell him to go away.
4: Yes, sir, if you insist, but... Uh, Do I... as you're told
6: and don't ask questions. If anybody wants me, I shall be with Mr. Wilmot. Very good, sir. <laughs> Wilmot. Mind if I sit down for a minute? Why, not
10: at all. Pull
6: up a chair. Have some coffee? No, thanks. I'll get down to brass tacks right away. Yes, you, you always do. I've noticed that. Well, I'm a pretty self-sufficient kind of a fellow, Wilmot. I made a name for myself, even if I do say it myself. But, well, the fact is, I need advice. Hmm. A successful publisher asking
10: advice from one of his own authors. That's something new, isn't it? Now, look here, Wilmot, I'm serious. All right, all right, I take it back. What's on your mind? You've studied what we'll call the supernatural, haven't you? I've lectured and written books about it, yes. And
6: did you ever meet a, a ghost? No, I can't say I ever did. Have you? It might only be my own imagination. Yes, that's what scares me. You get on in years and your arteries harden and you don't take enough exercise and you think something ought to be done about your waistline, but but you never bother. You see, Wilmot, I went to a funeral yesterday. You did? Whose funeral was it? The person who died has nothing to do with this. It was old Simpson of Harley and Sons. We thought it was only decent to make up a party and go to the funeral. And I took my secretary along, a girl named Molly Carroll. I'm leaving for Washington tomorrow. Besides, I'm moving house. So there was a lot of work to do. What I couldn't stand was that infernal cemetery in the rain. And we must have gone in by the wrong gate. Because we were in a neglected, desolate part of the cemetery... where the rank grass grew over the grave. You'll oblige me, Miss Carroll... if you first find out the proper directions of our places... You've come in the wrong gate to the cemetery.
0: Well, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Templeton. I thought... It was... But you thought
6: doesn't matter now. This is the wrong part of the cemetery. My shoes are absolutely ruined with wet clay.
0: Well, it isn't doing my own shoes and stockings any good either, Mr. Templeton. If
6: there's been any damage to them, Miss Carroll, I'll replace them. you never found me ungenerous, now have you?
0: Well, not exactly ungenerous,
6: no. And I'll pay you the compliment, Miss Carroll, saying that you're the best secretary I ever had. Thank you. Yet you want to leave me.
0: Y- yes, I... I want to get married.
6: That's what Mr. Barnes was telling me. And who is this caravan of yours? What does he do? Does he make any money?
0: Well, Frank's a radio technician. He's not very wealthy, I'll admit.
6: Wealthy? A radio technician? I bet he doesn't make as much as I pay you. Yet you want to get married.
0: Well, is there anything very strange about that?
6: Yes. If it interferes with your career, if it... Good Lord. Look at that.
0: Look at what, Mr. Templeton?
6: Over there, where I'm pointing.
0: You mean that? It's only an old gravestone covered with weeds and brambles.
6: I haven't seen that grave in years.
0: It looks rather neglected.
6: It is neglected, isn't it? Will you go closer, please, and read the inscription?
0: Mr. Templeton.
6: Do as I tell you, please.
0: It says... Let's see if I can get some of these weeds aside. It says... Sacred mm. to the memory of Mary Ellen Cleaver. Born September 5th, 1892. Departed this life March 25th, 1919. Thou should still be adored as this moment thou art. Let thy loveliness fade as it will. If you lower that umbrella, Mr. Templeton, you'll get soaking wet.
6: Sentimental crash. But she always liked
0: it. She always liked it?
6: Mary Ellen Cleaver. Did you know her? Very well indeed. She was my wife.
0: Your wife? But but I never knew you were married.
6: Neither does anybody else. Where's my flask of brandy? What have I done with it?
0: It's in your hip pocket, Mr. Templeton, but do you think that's very wise? You've already had more than enough. Whatever I
6: do is wise, Miss Carroll. Well, we were married very young. She was a nice little thing. I was fond of her, yes. But, but she couldn't have helped me. I'm not a snob, but she wasn't in my class. No style, you know, no manners, no no education. Indeed. Could I have introduced her to the friends I was making? No. Wouldn't have been kind to her. She didn't even want to go to the places where I was invited. She'd sit at home and say, what was it like? Did you have a nice time? What was Mrs. So-and-so wearing? And she loved me. I'll put that to her credit. But... You left her? I thought it was the kindest thing to do, yes. She went away. Then I heard she'd had... Had what? Nothing. Doesn't matter. Well, there was a war on. I attended the peace conference in Europe. Never even knew she was dead until I heard some friends had buried her. I always promised to call her up. She said she'd come back to me if I did.
0: You couldn't call her up now, Mr. Templeton, even if you wanted to. No, I suppose
6: not. But I was fond of her. I wish there was something I could do.
0: You could have her grave cared for. Have some flowers put on it.
6: That's it. That's an idea. She'd have liked that. Can you take care of that for me?
0: I'll look after it tomorrow morning, Mr. Templeton.
6: But how will they ever be able to
0: locate the grave? There must be
6: thousands in this
0: cemetery. Oh, each grave has a number, you know. Cut into the stone so you can identify it. This is number
6: 1212. 1212. Sounds like a telephone number, doesn't it? Yes,
0: doesn't it?
6: Meadowvale 1212. Poor girl. I was fond of her.
0: Please, Mr. Templeton, come along and and please, no more, Brandy. You've got a funeral to attend.
6: And then Wilmot. The night came. And the horror.
10: What horror? Take it easy, man. There's nothing to worry about. You're
6: sitting here in the Cosmopolites' club. Yes, but I wasn't sitting in the club last night. I was on my way home. And why should that scare you? I don't know, but it did. I'd been jumpy all day. That infernal number kept running through my head. Meadowvale, 1212. Have you ever seen my house? Yes, it's that big sham gothic place on Riverside Drive, isn't it? Yes, big and dark and drafty like a mausoleum. I told you it was moving house to an apartment downtown but there were some papers there. I had to get out of the safe in the library to take with me to Washington tomorrow. I knew the servants would be gone, of course. But I hoped Mrs. Bloom, that's my housekeeper, would still be there. Then, when I went up the
8: park, about 6.30... Meadowvale, one, two, one, two.
0: Meadowvale, one, two, one, two.
6: Meadowvale, one, two,
9: one, two. Meadowvale, one, two, one, two. Mr. Templeton, this is a
6: surprise. Sorry to trouble you, Mr. Bloom. I seem to have mislaid my key. The other could have sworn I had it on the key ring this morning.
9: It's no trouble, Mr. Templeton. Only, I hope you're not planning to spend the night here. No, I'm
6: going to a hotel. Why do you ask?
9: Because they've disconnected everything except the electricity and taken away most of the furniture.
6: I haven't touched anything in the library.
9: No, sir. I told them you said to leave that. Uh, But it does seem a pity, in a way. What seems a pity? To break up a lovely home like this after all these years. Home?
6: This big, ugly picture gallery?
9: It's been a home to me, sir.
6: I've treated you generously, haven't I?
9: Yes, sir. I'm sorry.
6: I've got several hours' work to do, Mrs. Bloom. A whole safe full of papers to sort over. I'm going to the library and... What's that you're hiding behind your back?
9: I'm not hiding anything, sir.
6: All the same, what is it?
9: It's only a music box, sir. I found it in the attic when the moving men were here. If I hadn't known there were... well, no ladies in your life, I'd have said it belonged to one of them. I love to hear them, sir. May I?
6: Mrs. Bloom. Yes, sir? If you don't want me to smash that music box, turn it off.
9: Yes, sir, I'm sure I never...
6: I'm going to the library. If you can find any sandwiches and coffee, bring them.
9: Yes, sir. Excuse me.
6: Same old library. Same old claw-footed desk. There's the Venetian mirror she bought for you. Look at yourself in the mirror, Templeton. Admit you can't face it. Admit you can't work here tonight. Admit you've got to have lights and music and... That's it. Go out for dinner. Telephone Wilmot. But they've let the phone. Oh, yes. Good. Here it is. Hello, hello. Yes, sir. Number please. I, uh... uh number, uh, please. I want, uh...
9: Meadowvale
6: 1212. Meadowvale
9: 1212.
6: Wait. What the devil's name am I saying? Change that. I want...
9: Hello, my darling. I knew you'd call me when you needed
6: me. Who is that speaking? Who are you?
9: Mary Ellen, dear, don't you recognize my voice?
6: You're not Mary Ellen. This is sick. Mary Ellen is dead.
9: Yes, dear, but the dead sleep lightly, and they can be lonely, too. And now that you do need me...
6: I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I'm coming
9: back to join you, dear. It's not easy, but I'll be there by the time the clock strikes seven. I'll wear a veil because I don't look very pretty.
6: I won't have this. I won't listen to you. I, I Goodbye, won't... Goodbye,
9: my dear. Remember, when the clock strikes seven...
6: Mrs. Bloom, Mrs. Bloom!
9: Mr. Templeton, what on earth is the matter?
6: Who's been playing tricks on me?
9: Tricks, sir. I don't understand. Who
6: spoke to me on this phone?
9: But, sir, nobody could have spoken to you on that phone. Nobody
6: could have? What are you talking about?
9: That phone's disconnected, sir.
6: Disconnected?
9: Yes, sir. The man came here this afternoon and took that little metal box off the wall and rolled all the wires up and put everything on the desk there. Said he'd be back tomorrow to take it away.
6: But Mrs. Bloom, that's impossible.
9: Look for yourself, sir. You're standing in the middle of the room holding that phone, and the wires don't lead anywhere.
7: That, that's true.
9: So you couldn't very well have talked to anybody on the phone that wasn't connected? Now could you?
7: I tell you, I got the operator. I heard it
6: ring. I talked to... to someone else.
9: Oh? And what did that person say?
6: She said... She'd be here to visit me when...
9: Mr. Templeton,
6: what's the matter? And so, Wilmot, that's what happened last night. Phone was disconnected. It was Mary Ellen's voice. There's no doubt about that. Am I out of my mind, or, or what? Before I say anything about that, my friend, well,
10: let's hear the end of your story. What did happen when the clock struck seven?
6: I don't know. You don't know? No, I lost my head. Ran out of that house as, as though the devil were after me. Maybe he was. And since then, I spent the night at the hotel. Today, I've walked past that house fifty times, a hundred times trying to muster up enough nerve to go in. I couldn't do it, but I've got to go in there. Why? It's those papers I've got to take to Washington. Send somebody else to get them. I can't do that, Wilmot. It's confidential information for the government. I've thought of everything. I've even bought a revolver, see?
10: For the love of heaven, man, put that gun away. You want the other club members to think you have gone insane? Then I thought of you. You know all the tricks of fake
6: spiritualists. You've written about it and lectured about it. Which
10: reminds me, by the way, that I'm lecturing before the Acropolis Club in about 20 minutes. You've got to break that engagement, Wilmot. Why?
6: Because you're going with me to my house
10: tonight, now. That's impossible, old man. Now sit quietly and listen to me. I'll go with you willingly tomorrow morning. That's too late. I'm taking an early plane to Washington. Well, then wait until I can get away from the lecture. Say, uh, around midnight. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take a taxi and join you as soon as I can. That won't do. I've got to know.
6: Know the answer now. Do you understand? Aren't you being a little unreasonable about this? Unreasonable or not, I usually get my own way and I mean to have it now. Well, then I'm afraid you'll have to go to the house alone. Besides, you know, Wilmot, you worry me. You sit there puffing at that pipe and looking at me out of those queer eyes of yours like a, like a young Satan. I've often wondered what you were really thinking about. Since you flatter my
10: intelligence so much, I was wondering whether you'd been quite frank with me. Frank with you how? About your late wife, Mary Ellen Kleber. What about her? Well, After she left you, something happened that uh, well, you don't like to talk about. Was there by any chance uh, a child, a son, for instance, or...
6: Did you say a son? Yes. I don't know what you're talking about.
10: Well, Then let's agree not to understand each other, shall we?
6: Now, are you coming with me or aren't you? I tell you, man, I'll get there as soon as I can. All I can think about is the wet red clay in that cemetery and the dismal grave in the rain and what her face might look like if she raised the veil and what am I going to see in that house? What am I going to see in that house? So
8: the clock time, the hours dwindle, and the traffic roar of the city sinks to a low growl behind twinkling lights. It is midnight, when a taxi moves along a certain street towards a certain house out of a bygone age, lightless, black against the stars, surrounded by iron railings and with a path bordered by fir trees leading to the front door. Look, too, with the face of Mr. Patrick Wilmot when that taxi draws
10: near. All right, driver. This is the place.
8: I'll be in wait for you, sir.
10: No, you needn't wait. Keep the change.
8: Thank you, sir. Good night.
10: Mm, so the front gate is open. And he did go in. <laughs> I beg your pardon. I didn't mean to bump into you.
0: Mr. Wilmot. You know who I am. Oh, yes. I've seen you several times in our office. I'm Molly Carroll, Mr. Templeton's secretary.
10: What are you doing here?
0: Well, it's Mr. Templeton. What about him? Well, that's what I want to know. I was out with Frank. That's my fiancé, And when I got home, the girl I room with said that Mr. Templeton had been phoning and phoning all evening. She said he sounded drunk or something. He... He wanted somebody to go with him to this house.
10: Evidently, I wasn't the only person he applied to. Shall we go in? Yes, but
0: the whole house is dark. Suppose he isn't there.
10: He's there, all right. You don't know men like Bert Templeton. But I... I'll push the gate wider. Now, straight up the walk to the front door. I've got a flashlight.
0: What are we going to find?
10: Something rather unpleasant, I'd better warn you. How do you know? I have my ways of knowing, Miss Carroll. Oh, oh, look. What is it?
0: That, that French window to the left of the front door. Yes. It's partly open.
10: Well, there's nothing in that, necessarily. Templeton said he'd lost his key. He might have had to open a window. Oh,
0: that's true, but...
10: So you see it, too, do you? See what? There's a footprint across the sill of that French window. A footprint made in wet clay.
0: Like like the clay of the cemetery.
10: So I should imagine. Will you go in first, or shall I?
0: Into that dark room, I will not.
10: Well, then stay here, please, until I get some lights on.
0: No, wait. I'll go. Let me take your arm.
10: All right, be careful now. Hmm, eh? I thought so. This room is the library. And there are more footprints of somebody or something walking in. They lead. Who's there? Who's there?
9: It's only me, sir. Mrs. Bloom, the housekeeper.
10: Then what's the idea of standing in a dark room in the middle of the night with what sounds like...
9: It's only a music box, sir. I left it behind along with some other things and came back to get them. I've got my own key. I thought I heard a noise in here. But why aren't there any lights? The electricity's cut off, sir. It was cut off today.
10: I see. Ah. it's... Templeton is here, or was here. He must have had some kind of light. If I turn this flashlight on the desk, maybe... Ah! Be quiet, Miss Carroll!
9: What is it, sir? I'm as blind as a bat without my glasses. It's
10: Mr. Templeton. He's lying on the floor beside the desk. Oh, he isn't... No, he isn't dead. His face is the color of putty. I think he's had some kind of stroke. We'd better not take any chances. Mrs. Bloom? Yes, sir? Get outside to the nearest telephone and call for an ambulance. Tell him it's an emergency case.
9: You're Mr. Wilmot, aren't you? But what's happened to him?
10: Ask a dead woman.
9: I beg your pardon.
10: Never mind. Hurry. Of
9: course, I'll hurry, Mr. Wilma. What are we going to do?
10: Well, let's have a look around. Templeton seems to have been working at his papers by the light of a couple of candles, which somebody's blown out. We'll relight them. Ah, uh, There's the desk. There's all the papers scattered round him. Mr.
0: Wilma, please. What happened to him?
10: I'll tell you. As he sat there in the dim light of two candles, a ghostly figure appeared at that French window. It wore a long, old-fashioned skirt and a heavy black veil to hide the face. It walked toward Templeton, tracking graveyard clay. It stretched its arms to him like this.
0: Keep away from me, please!
10: Templeton couldn't stand it. He collapsed. And now, before the old housekeeper returns, would you care to hear how the whole trick was worked?
0: Trick? What trick?
10: Have you heard about the ghost voice that talked on a disconnected telephone?
0: Oh, yes. Yes, he, he said something about it this morning, but I, I, I thought he wasn't himself.
10: He wasn't, but he heard it. Remember Mrs. Bloom's story about the telephone man? Yes. They don't send a man around to yank the whole apparatus off the wall, put it on the desk, and say he'll be back for it next day. This man from the telephone company was an imposter.
0: The man from the telephone company was an imposter? Exactly. Oh, look, he's moving his hand. He's trying to open his eyes. Isn't there anything we can do for him?
10: No, there's nothing we can do till the doctor arrives. In the meantime, listen to me.
0: All right. What did this imposter do?
10: He took away the real phone and substituted a spirit telephone. You don't know what a spirit telephone is.
0: No, of course not.
10: It's an old device used by fake mediums. You see a telephone without wires standing on a desk like that one. You pick up the receiver and talk to the dead. Of course, you never really talk into the phone at all. But if you don't talk into the phone, then... Fixed underneath the desk is a tiny microphone with hidden wires leading to another room in the same house. That microphone picks up every word you think you're saying to the phone. Is that clear? I think so. The dummy telephone is really a low-power radio receiving set. Somebody in another room can talk back to you after hearing what you say on the wired microphone.
0: Then, Mr. Templeton... If
10: Templeton hadn't rung Meadowvale 1212... Then rest assured, that same number would have rung him.
0: Well, then the scheme couldn't fail either way. But, you see,
10: there's one thing in this matter I haven't got quite clear even yet.
0: And what's that?
10: Tell me, Miss Carroll, just why did you work this whole trick? Why did you try to scare your father to death? My father. Templeton is your father, isn't he?
0: That might be rather difficult to prove, Mr. Wilmot.
10: By George, I admire
0: you. Thanks very much. I'm flattered.
10: Expressionless as ever. Eyes as hard and cold and blue and and handsome as—well, make your own comparisons. But I knew you were guilty, of course, when I heard your fiancé was a radio technician. You can
0: leave Frank out of this. Oh, you have
10: scruples. Have I touched you?
0: Nothing can touch me. Not since my mother died.
10: Your fiancé installed the ghost mechanism and took it away today. He probably thought it was only a joke.
0: He did. I swear he did.
10: And the rest of it was plain enough. Who led Templeton to the wrong gate in the cemetery, past that woman's grave? You did. Who was the only one who could have stolen the key to this house off that key ring he took to the office? You were. You needed that key to come and go as you liked and impersonate the two voices on the phone.
0: Is there any need to go on with this? He killed her, you know.
10: You mean Templeton killed your mother?
0: Oh, not with a knife or a bullet or poison. All he did was break her heart. And that's no offense in law. steady now. Well, I've done what I wanted to do. I've torn his whole rotten life to pieces. And there he is, gasping for breath on the floor. And I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm gl- Oh, God, forgive me. He is my father.
10: Does he know you're his daughter?
0: No. No, of course not. When I went to work for him as a secretary, he hadn't even seen me since I was a child. But I got near him. I worked for years to get near him. No. I wish I hadn't. Now, look
10: here. You've got to pull yourself together.
0: Why? Who cares?
10: The ambulance coming and maybe the police.
0: What do I care? Tell the police what you like.
10: My dear girl, you don't think I'll tell them anything. I'm merely an onlooker. An amateur Satan who doesn't believe in ghost voices.
9: Mary Ellen, Mary Ellen. What's
10: that? Templeton, his eyes are open. He's trying to get up.
0: Mary Ellen, Mary Ellen, Mary it's as Ellen.
10: As though, it's as though he he could see something that we can't What's see. that
0: he's got in his hand?
10: It's a revolver. He had one at the club.
0: He's putting it against his chest. Oh, no. I'll stop Look him. Look out. Look out. <coughs> He'd love her after all. And now he's tried to join her. Oh, don't let him die. He's
10: all right, Molly. You grabbed the gun just in time.
0: If he doesn't die, I'll make it up to him. I swear I'll make it up to him. I tell you now, he's not going to die, but... Mary Ellen. Mary Ellen. Mary Ellen.
6: But what? But what? Mary Ellen.
10: I was... I was just wondering. Is there a ghost in this room tonight...
8: And so closes The Dead Sleep Lightly, starring Walter Hamden, Susan Hayward, and Lee Bowman. Tonight's tale of... Suspense. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday. Miss Hayward appeared through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures, and Mr. Bowman appeared through the courtesy of Metro Goldwyn Mayer Studios. William Speer, the producer, John Dietz, the director, Bernard Herrmann, the composer, conductor, and John Dixon Carr, the author, collaborated on tonight's
1: Thank you for joining us at 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We try to alternate weeks with two episodes of Escape, one week, followed by two episodes of Suspense the following week. New episodes of 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense are available every Sunday at noon Eastern time. We always appreciate reviews. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.